So meeting ourselves, meeting how it is, without much distraction, is somewhat challenging, as we've discovered. Um, So the feeling is an undercurrent of dis-ease that we can connect with and feel, sort of something pushing on. The Buddha called this feeling of samsara, something yet to complete, somewhere else to go, something else to do, something that's not quite finished, and uh, it sort of is an undercurrent that flows through our conscious moments. This is one of the things that he said about this experience of of being uh, alive and feeling this challenge of it. Long have we experienced the death of loved ones, loss of wealth, loss due to sickness. As we turn through the wheel of samsara, our tears of grief are greater than the four oceans. Why is that? Inconceivable is the beginning of samsara. Beginningless is ignorance and craving. Long have you suffered dukkha, pain and loss. Long enough to be disenchanted with all sankharas, conditioned, compounded phenomena. Long enough to be dispassionate, to turn toward release. So a necessary part of this journey of awakening is to really come into contact and to feel and be open to this difficulty, this challenge, this sometimes feeling unrelenting experience of um, dukkha, sort of the agitation of it, the restlessness of it, the taste of not quite being free or complete or full or rested or undisturbed. So it's not that the release from that is that uh, everything's going to stop or end or the world suddenly crashes or we disappear or we go up in a big balloon of enlightenment and big lightning flash and it's all ended there's still the continuation of sankhara, compounded phenomena, there's still life, there's still the world, there's still our engagement. But what the Buddha pointed to as a very necessary part of his uh, teaching, the essence of his teaching in many ways, really necessary for us to, to grapple with and to contemplate. This very core teaching was actually to understand the nature of dukkha and how through that understanding that we can be released from it, released from this experience of agitation, dissatisfaction, 
and all that contributes uh, to it. Because until we, we really understand that, until we really come to terms with that, until we really practice with that and feel the fruit of the release from that, then we always, ex- always experience this samsara, which sort of sometimes translates as a endless wandering. We're always looking for something. You know, searching the world, scanning the senses, going through our catalogue of our filing cabinets of the mind <laughs> in the meditation retreat where we don't have much external world, so we sort of pull out all the endless papers of our memories, memory bank, and you know how tedious that gets and how it's hard to really kind of shut those doors. <laughs> but this taste, this sangsara, it sort of always is, uh, has a taste to it, a sort of endlessness to it, an uncertainty to it, a destabilization to it, a feeling of something more. And it's, it's very um, seductive because we, we sort of believe it and then we are compelled and propelled into to looking for ways to satiate that feeling. So, so this, the brilliance of the, the Buddha's teaching was to name this experience very clearly because usually we're actually in profound reaction to it but to name it and to, to have a practice in a way to steady enough, to be here enough, so that as is said, that each of these aspects of the four truths, four noble truths, the Arya Satcha, the truths when we live through them and realize them and grow through them, they're ennobling. That uh, when, we, when we recognize um, this dukkha, then it, then this path, and from what the the teaching that the the Buddha left offers a way to actually work with it, to contemplate it, rather than just try and continually distract ourselves from it. So sometimes, as Ajahn Chah would say in his training, <laughs> which was uh, very much about to some degree, um, really his, you know, allowing his students or even creating the circumstance where his students would be, as he would say, when you're sort of in a corner and you can't go up and you can't go down, you can't go sideways and you can't disappear, then you have w- one choice left. You have to turn to be with what is not easy to be with. And this is this experience of dukkha. And in many ways, this is a a big part of our practice, a big part of our daily experience. And, you know, one thing, one translation of this word dukkha is that which is not easy to to be with, that which is hard to bear. So it's said there's, uh, in in the teaching, that there's three kinds of dukkha. I mean, there's many kinds, but just in a very broad template so we can orientate ourselves and have some uh, clarity around um, this working with this theme is the dukkha dukkha. (laughs) 
which means the dukkha inherent within uh, compounded phenomena, meaning that, you know, there's a certain amount of dukkha that's just in, in the system. You know, if you get, you have a body, you're born, um, there's aging, there's pain in the knees, there's, you know, it's not that the freedom of dukkha this means you suddenly don't feel pain or you don't feel loss or you don't feel grief at the loss of loved ones or you magically sort of, you know, abdicate from all human processes, that there's inevitably going to be just the dukkha of embodiment, just the dukkha of something not quite working in the body, of, as I said, of um, the dukkha of, uh, of aging, the dukkha of, of birth, the, the dukkha of um, death. Uh, the dukkha of old age. Um, these uh, these are sort of inherent um, pains or difficulties or challenges. Dukkha of sickness. This is dukkha dukkha. And then the dukkha viparanama, which means it's a sort of um, a subtle dukkha. It's a dukkha of the loss of the pleasant. Just the fading of things or the impermanent. You know, that sense of the subtle sense or strong sense of just living with impermanence. But what the dukkha, uh, what the, the dukkha that the Buddha was really pointing to that we can free ourselves from is called dukkha sankara, which is this fundamental wrong understanding of the nature of, of reality and the nature of our of mind. It's this identification with the with the changing, uh, which is a subtle aspect of the teaching, subtle thing to see, but see it, but doable to see. It's this uh, in when the Buddha talked about the the um, eight categories of dukkha. The, some of the ones I just mentioned, dukkha, dukkha, and then talking about. Not getting what you want, not uh, not um, getting what you don't want, being uh, parted from the loved, being together with the unloved. These kinds of dukkhas. Those are those ones that we work with quite often, daily. <laughs> but then these very subtle ones, these identifications in the categorization of dukkha. He talked about in brief the five focuses of the grasping mind. And this is the sort of, this is the subtler aspect of where the five focuses, the five skandhas or khandhas, the five ways that the, the sense of me and who I am is shaped. And how the identification with those generates this sense of dis-ease, dislocation, un- unreliability, Conditionality, we sort of feel that sense of lack of firm ground. The skanda of uh, form, the body, both the external body and then the subtle energetic body, this uh, identification. And it's not a dismissal, it's not a denial, it's not a rejection which is often uh, sometimes misinterpreted and you know it's not a lack of care of or concern or deep embodiment 
but it's this subtle way that we interpret everything that happens uh, in our bodily experience as happening to me. There's a sense of self that arises around that. And it's at, at that place that, you know, as the, as the Buddha talked about with, with um, bodily feeling in particular, uh, when he talked in the Dart Sutra, that we can experience um, unpleasant feeling and then the mind creates uh, a mental pain around what is felt in the body. You know, either through aversion, shouldn't be here, or through desire, I'd like it to be pleasant. Or just confusion about the nature of what's being experienced. Not really seeing it's actually also in a process of change. It's not ultimately what, who or what we are. So this, this, um, this subtle tendency to, to grasp or to identify or to get confused around the nature of our experience as, as body as a Vedana, which is very, very powerful for us. Feeling, sensation, felt sense. Sanya, perception, memory, familiarity. These are just naming the ways of naming the totality of our experience. Sankara, which is a it literally means that which has uh, been put together, the sort of patterning. You know, these are, this is connected not only with a bodily sankara and form, but the the structures of the self, the ener- both at an energetic level and also at a deeply patterned level, uh, connected with our perceptions and memories and feelings and emotions and narratives and then um, how perception works to name, this is me, that's you. And uh, vinyana, this vinyana is translated often as a consciousness that's connected around the senses. Yeah, this, the moments of um, hearing, tasting, touching, feeling, smelling, so on. That um, there's a, a feeling, uh, there's a, a moment of Seeing, and then there's the feeling of I'm seeing you, and immediately there's an I and a you and a dynamic rather than we contemplating um, the other day, just the teaching to Bahia is, is just seeing, it's just seeing, and then we create there's a me seeing you, this vinyana, this dualistic sensory consciousness that fuels and generates um, the sense of. Me, time, going somewhere, connected with uh, the other khandas that are actually appearing and operating in every moment of our conscious awareness. So in the contemplation of them, we can contemplate them. You know, the Buddha made an analogy. He said, um, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you go to the river Ganges, um, and you, you know, if we say that name, we think, oh yes, I have a perception of it. Maybe I've even been there. You know, it's it's a definite thing. It's in India. But if we actually went up to it and picked it up, and it sort of ran through our fingers, we couldn't really capture something called the River Ganges. 
You know, there isn't really a, a, a solidity there. And so in the same way with these khandhas, we talk about Kilisaro and Tanisra and have perceptions or people that we know. Um, we have a lot of that in our minds, comes up in our meditation about who I am and who they are. And they're very, you know, they can be quite tyrannical, those kind of uh, internal um, dramas that we play out in our mind with a whole cast of characters. And if you notice with the me at the central, on the central um, kind of starring role, you know, but actually if we went up to that, uh, that perception or those memories or those feeling tones and really looked in and p- tried to, like that river, try to pick something out, then it, it's, it, 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 it's elusive. There's nothing that solid there. So this is one way that we begin to contemplate the experience of a conditioned structure that feels so real and strong to us and has the sense of self, has the sense of other, and therefore generates a sense of dukkha, that which has come into form, into being, instability, and we rely on that, we lean on that, we lean into that story, we try and fix it, sort out the different characters, put everything in place. And as you know, this, that's then sangsara because it's endlessly impossible to get it right. Ajahn Chah would say that, you know, you kind of line everyone up one way. As his disciples, he'd want everyone to be like, just like on the same page. You line everyone up, you know, oh, it's good. And then all the feet are out. So you line all the feet out, all the heads are out. You can't get everything in the right box. Something or someone always pops out. And we always feel a bit offended by that, <laughs> or a bit let down, or a bit upset, or a bit overwhelmed, or disappointed. So we're always feeling like, you know, perhaps being a bit disappointed, or it's not quite right. But it's actually perfect, because it's showing us that this is the nature of, of sankara, this is the nature of conditioned existence, this is the nature of phenomena, that it, it has this dukkha, it's not going to be perfect. It is perfect, actually, but because of the nature of our, the way that ignorance operates in the mind, not seeing clearly, and then we generate, we are generating the sense of dukkha, actually, from the ignorance of the mind. It's sometimes, often we really feel it's being done to us. You know, and, and it is. <laughs> There's a lot of dukkha that gets done to us. Uh, but even so, even, even that which comes uh, down the pike in life, there's still, even the most difficult, the most unfair, there's still a place of practice. There's still a place you know, where we can look at what am I generating from the mind that's actually generating the experience of dukkha. Generating the struggle around how it is. And that doesn't mean to say that we don't feel how it is and we don't respond to how it is and we don't try and fix how it is or challenge how it is. This is a subtler level of, of exploration. It's, it's possible to experience something very, very difficult and move beyond the reactivity of the mind which goes into denial, distraction, blame, 
overwhelm. It's possible to, to experience that and to still within the heart of it free ourselves from the dukkha of it. It's not only possible, it's actually really necessary. So, you know, this is, you know, in each of these um, truths that the Buddha taught, he gave a practice. So in the, this first truth, there is the experience of dukkha. And even the way it's said like that in the, in the suttas is very um, dispassionate. It's not like, you know, I'm suffering and therefore I'm, I'm wrong or a bad person or, or somehow I'm failing. I remember one of our, our monastic friends saying that when he was very, very early uh, in the Dharma and he went to Thailand to ordain and he had a lot of suffering and he was listening, he went to an elder monk and this monk gave a talk and, and he just said, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a personal failing that you're suffering, it's not your fault. You know, it's not something you've done wrong. It's just that, you know, you haven't yet learned to work with it skillfully. You've overly identified, you've taken it as a self, me, me suffering and me therefore failing. So even this, this way that it's phrased is there is this experience of dukkha. And even that in our society, it feels like you can't really own that. It's like if you say, if someone says, how are you? Generally speaking, you've got to say, I'm great, fantastic. <laughs> if you're in America, I'm awesome, you know. It's really going great. <laughs> in England, you can sort of moan a bit more. <laughs> We're a bit more negative over there. Grumpy bunch we are, really. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's not socially acceptable to say, you know, actually, I'm really suffering. You know, it's really difficult. I'm having a hard time. We can say it to our therapist, but, you know, we we have to keep a mask going. That we're successful, that it's, you know... So it's a great relief. I think one of the great reliefs of this practice is to know it's okay to feel dukkha. You know, we don't have to always be happy. (laughs) And it's nice when we're happy. But it's it's not only okay, but it's actually a real opportunity. And as the the in the teaching, the practice in relationship to this experience is it, when it arises, is to recognise it first, because usually we we're not really recognising it; we're reacting to it first. We project it onto the self, bad self. We project it out. It's all wrong outside. We go into our strategies, we have a billion dollar industry to distract ourselves from this fundamental truth of life of unsatisfactoriness. We have an enormous technology and power to control everything to alleviate this fundamental truth so that we have the illusions of living in sort of happy palaces of Disneyland and so on. Yeah until life crashes in and then you know at some point somewhere along the line we have to come to terms we have to be faced with this truth so rather do it while we can and we have the capacity and then wait for when it becomes impossible 
Or as Ajahn Chah would say, we practice with the little things in the daily life so that we're ready for when the big things hit. Or as ready as can be, never really quite ready. So to turn to the teaching, the encouragement is there is dukkha and it needs to be turned to, it needs to be met, it needs to be contemplated, it needs to be uh, to be with it, not to be with it uh, reactively, not to be with it to just feel very sorry for ourselves, uh, not to be with it uh, and rush out and change the world, which is, is, does need a lot of changing, but to, you know, we can, I think it's more effective when we change the world from a clearer and less, you know, of a place of less of an agenda, but more really resonant and from understanding how to be with dukkha here as well as out there. So being able to turn to this experience is very radical actually. Um, and to, this is why the, the samadhi, the strength uh, of, of uh, attention and awareness, embodied practice is really helpful as we can take moments of our attention to turn to the experience when it arises. This is dukkha. In a a meditative way, it's it's, um, helpful if we can actually get beneath the cognitive reactions and strategies around this experience and actually go to what's felt. Uh, And this is where, again, the embodied practice is very helpful. How is it felt in the body? Constriction, turbulence, upset. And just to begin to train our, the same awareness and tension that we bring to the breath, beginning to, to train our awareness and attention just to meet that there. Take the breath there, take awareness there, just to breathe where it's felt. without even demanding that, okay, that's it, move on now. <laughs> and in many ways, quite a lot of our practice is about that, actually. It's about being with, especially as we go deeper in this kind of a space, there's a lot about having the opportunity to really steady, be very quiet, quieting the mind, steadying the mind, cultivating samadhi, but inevitably the deeper unresolved patternings, the sankharic material um, that's connected with some very, uh, can be connected with a very deep um, early wounding, uh, the sense of self, the sense of self that carries that's, uh, some unconscious feeling tones, not being worthy, not being good, um, self-aversion, um, fear, anger, these kinds of primary energies of the self-structure um, appear. And they're meant to appear. And then we can feel, I was so calm, and now all this is coming up. <laughs> you know, quick, <laughs> get back to that state of, of stillness. But actually this is, you know, the fruits of the practice are not only calm and clarity, but they're also... 
allowing the dukkha to emerge and the sankharic patterning to be, uh, to, that there's enough inner safety and capacity that some of this material can come up so we can meet it with our practice, with our awareness. It's not going wrong, it's actually going right. And some of, some of the patternings we, we can't see because they're so us, they're so deep. You know, it can take a long time to see some very um, deep patternings that, that have shaped the sense of self, colored how we feel about ourselves, and how that, um, that's a sort of filter through which we experience the world around us. Which, uh, you know, when I... Um, contemplate this myself and my own patternings, a very deep one uh, for me um, has been the feeling which is connected to the territory of the second truth, the, the tanha, the bawa tanha, desire to become something, kama tanha, the desire for sensory absorption, to feel completion through our sensory experience, wanting something to fill us. We know that one, don't we? <laughs> the bawa tanha, you know, to be something more than we are. There's so much of that energy. You know, it's really, it's quite poignant really because it's sort of very grounded in this feeling, this chronic feeling that we're not enough. Somehow we got that. I, you know, we never got that you're beautiful, you're enough. We, we you know, and it's different than the feeling of the, the, the sort of more open, freer energy of uh, I want to really explore and grow and, you know, cultivate myself. And, you know, in a very positive way, sometimes we're often driven from this very, um, it's cultural, but it's also, um, I think, very ancient, actually, in terms of how our culture has evolved out of a, um, being ripped out of a deep sense of being, belonging in the web of life, which is an old story. And we seek to try and get back to that through so many ways. And, you know, this, and however, if you've noticed however much you achieve, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, somehow it doesn't satiate until we actually really grapple with the underlying bhava dhanha. Like a, a story I tell of our, of our friend, he's now passed over, a friend of Kirisara, they were, they were at university together in the UK. And he was from South Africa, and he he was um, started off being very idealistic about the changes he wanted to see um, in South Africa when he went back from his university education, in terms of dismantling the uh, racist system. But landed up in the end, really landing uh, working for um, one of the largest companies, mining companies in South Africa, and getting to the top because he was brilliant brilliant guy, very perceptive, very driven, very ambitious. And he got to the top niche of that company, which was quite a considerable, powerful position. And we met him then years later, towards the end of his career, had accomplished a lot um, materially and in his career. And I remember being at a, he had the, would have these uh, cocktail parties and dinner parties in his home in Joburg, with ministers and um, sort of captains of industry and bankers and traders. Not the sort of company we usually keep. 
and you know someone turns and say well, what do you do and you say well um, <laughs> I teach meditation <laughs> quite go down the right way but anyway um, one night at one of these um, what I find quite difficult socially um, gatherings um, and everyone would they, they, they drink you know a lot of wine and actually for me it was be easier once they had drunk a lot of wine because everyone start to sort of like soften and calm down a bit, you know, and get sort of less kind of brutal in their repartee. So I was sitting next to this guy. He was he was quite open, you know. He's sort of a bit wizzy, and he started talking. He just turned to me, and started talking about all these um, nightmares that he had. And I asked him why, and he said, "Well, you know, I my job, I and mean, he would, he would gamble millions and millions of dollars on the on the stock market." against the product that they were involved with and sometimes lose, you know. He said, it's just so, so much fear. I have so much fear and I, and, I, and I said, how do you deal with that? He said, I suppress it. He's a very honest guy. I just suppress it. But it comes up in nightmares. So and I said to him, well, well, how much is enough? You know, he's talking about like having to keep going, keep going. And I just said, you know, when is it enough? And he said to me, when I'm successful. And, and I, I was so, so stunned. I, I actually didn't think to say, well, what is success for you? Because, you know, if anyone looked at you and your portfolio, you would be one of the most successful people in this country. But it wasn't enough. But we can all perhaps relate to that. Not in that particular story, but the feeling of um, it's never enough. We don't really know how to enjoy, how to be fully in the web of life, how to be present, that bhava tanha, until we really contemplate it and release ourselves from it, is unlinked from. But the big patterning for me that was um, perhaps more profound than that, this third form of desire in the the second truth is the vipava tanha, which is is the, the feeling of not wanting to be here, not wanting to exist. Um, the sort of sense of a burden, a heaviness of just being alive. Um, it wasn't really uh, a suicidal feeling, but it was a, a just this sort of like dread, pervasive um, sense of... I think that's why I was attracted to meditation. <laughs> it's like, just, we just sit here and go somewhere else. <laughs> And it took years and years and years to begin to see it as a conditioned pattern and not me, and not be shaped by that. And you know, one, one night when, um, a, few, a few incidents, when I really started to get um, a, a handle on this, and I think it was interesting, one, one night it was at a, I was teaching in South Africa again at one of the centers there, and um, I'd given a talk and I walked out and then this voice came up that was absolutely um, shocking for me to hear it, but I called it. It was, it was like, you know, that was so bad, you should go and do yourself in. It was, it was a very, very violent, like, um, like a knife. But I, I had enough by then mindfulness to catch it, to just see it as a sankara and to begin to contemplate it at the felt sense level it was, um, they, have a, they have a saying of the, 
of the, the devastating wound to being, you know, the devastation of the wound to our being that often happens in a, a very early conditioning. And it can be very ancestral as well as these, what gets carried on and is felt at an energetic level and shapes the sense of self at a, at a very primary level. And often over that there's layerings of, you know, of our competencies um, and so often we don't feel that devastating wound to being because it's so painful to feel it and it, it can really shatter the coherency psychologically of what you've put together so it's actually there's a, a reason that we don't allow ourselves to feel that, that we have our defenses defenses aren't, you know, are sometimes really helped us survive <laughs> so we don't want to rip them away but in the meditative process if we're really deeply going into opening and into the awareness uh, process and softening into that, then some of this material will start to emerge and we'll feel it as a felt sense level. And it might be quite nebulous. It might not even have a form or a name, um, but it will feel its dukkha, definitely. Um, And then we can feel this is going wrong and let me just get my sort of competent meditator self together (laughs) and my samadhi practice and, you know, push it all back down. And, you know, maybe that's what the best we can do sometimes, sometimes for years, but to also allow us ourselves to feel what's hard to feel, even a little bit, and to, to breathe there. But it's a different relationship. I think when I first also got the depth, and I started, with that moment, something started to change when I saw that, I saw the, the depth of the violence of this self-harm harming really and then there was a, another incident when uh, which I write about in our book which I, I won't read the whole story so it's just to sort of paraphrase it when Kitty Sarah and I had sort of you know in, you know there was working in South Africa was, <clears throat> was very challenging for for me being there because of the the level of uh, trauma in the field and the deep uh, profound um insoluble and strange uh, world it is from, from having um, emerged from the, you know, the colonial impact and then 50 years of apartheid. It's a very strange field to go into when apartheid has been so successful and, and, and it's a sort of culture built, built on very deliberate division and everyone takes something like that as a norm and it's completely abnormal to what's actually felt in the human heart. There's a human heart it's not divided. The human heart feels empathy and connection. So this is a construct that's imposed that generates a dissonance that then dislocates us from the natural arriving in our natural heart where we just make connection. You know, so it's a very profound wound and it's very complicated. And you know, for many, for a long time, I, I didn't even you know it took a it's a, a long story, but. It activated what happened for me, I realized in retrospect, it activated my own inner apartheid <laughs> and my own dislocations. And so it's quite a combo of, of energetic processes to, to um, work with, not always very consciously, but to feel the affect of that. And so somewhere along the line, you know, it's after what had been a very difficult period, um, we decided to go on holiday down to the coast, which is, you know, South Africa is a very beautiful land and, and um, it's 
you just, you know, some of you have been there, you've been there with me and Kilisara, and it's, it's, you know, it's um, like many, much of the land in Africa is so stunning, you know, so beautiful. And they were there by the coast and um, the Durban, in Durban coastline, the Indian Ocean, and this warm, balmy evening, and, you know, having a good time. And then we got into an argument about how much to tip the waiter at this restaurant. And suddenly, you know, what was a, a little bit of a disagreement became a big meltdown for me. And all of that patterning started to to come up and I couldn't uh, stop it. And I noticed that what my pattern was around that patterning <laughs> of the unbearable wound was to freeze and disassociate. For you know, we have we know about that. It's you know, f- fight, flight, minus freeze, disassociate, um, which is very scrambling for the brain because you can't think, you're not coherent, you, you can't connect, you get confused. Um, but what I, but I, you know, I, I, what I experienced was going into this very frozen state around this pattern and then that depth of that wounding, uh, which actually at that point did have this, taste or this flavor of you need to go and do yourself in you need to kind of go into that ocean at night the sharks there and you know just walk into oblivion it was like this oblivion which was really where the state uh, was going and you know fortunately Kilisar was very loving because <laughs> it wasn't very easy for him to be around me going into a freeze and you know this sort of cold anger and pain and so he just sat there, which is a good thing to do, just when someone does that, just to be present. In the same way, when those kinds of states come up for us, we're learning to just be present for ourselves as a meditator. Just present, we just touch kindly. We're not trying to fix it, we're not trying to throw on some anapanasati on top and a big sort of technique. We're just very, 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 very gentle breathing with, with a difficult state. So he sat there and at a certain point just held my hand, which was also pretty brave at that moment. And we sat there and I started to just come back into my body. But it was a very useful moment because I felt it was the moment that I was consciously could begin to touch the depth of the wound to being. And from that point on, what I began to notice is that the side effects of that, maybe the depressions or the dislocation or the crippling lack of confidence or the sabotage, self-sabotage, all of the sort of affects started to not immediately disappear as magic, but over the years started to dissolve and, and be freed up. And then I could, I could begin to see the triggering of that pattern and notice it uh, more clearly and not just go into it and fall in it and be gone or not just be uh, flooded by the affect, but just to see, ah. And then sometimes it would be there like a ghost. It would just appear. It wouldn't, it would, the power of it, the power of it starts to seep out. I mean, admittedly, I've done a lot of other work, therapeutic and deep other body work and so on to help support.
but at a meditative level to realize that actually the this teaching which was a primary training through my monastic life this was the teaching that was at the heart of it was learning to recognize this is a experience of dukkha and it's not wrong it's something we turn to and we contemplate what is generating it so you can actually be with dukkha and not suffer from it you can feel all of that um, and be with whatever our patterning is and it's all going to perhaps have a slightly different flavor for each of us Um, and it's not necessary I'm talking about perhaps a very primary level but just subtle restlessness um, aversion don't even know what it is don't really feel like I'm quite here we can be with that, those patterns once we understand and begin to strengthen our understanding and practice of this teaching without generating more suffering on top. Like it shouldn't be like this. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, if it, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> it's like it is. This is how it is. Here we say, like, looking at the, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. And the practice there is to to let be, to let go of that, to just let things be. We can deeply let things be. And again, it's just to qualify, it doesn't mean we don't engage or do things, but at at a more subtle level, just to let things be, even dukkha, then we begin to undo the mechanism that generates this extra, this sankara dukkha, the extra suffering through the aversion or the desire for it to be a different way, the aversion to it, the push and pull around what is. And this this is then the key or begins to open the door, the, the letting go, the release the, into the third truth, the territory, or it's called the nibida, the dispassion, the viraga, the freeing from the identification, from the constant sangsara of push and pull and should be, shouldn't be, needing to go, needing to do, having to solve. And it's very immediate, it can be whatever is going on, very immediate, even within the most difficult condition, there's already the freedom there. There's already that which isn't suffering, which just is. So this this third territory, this uh, nibida, starts with a nibida, which means a disenchantment or I've had enough. Often we come to meditation because we really feel that very deeply, that sort of sense of um, not being that excited about what's on offer anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so I, when, when I first met Ajahn Chow, one of the first things he said to me <laughs> was, have you had enough yet? <laughs> you know, I mean, he kind of meant like, have you had enough of like running around like a mad thing trying to drink the ocean of life? you know, and grab it all, experience it. Have you had enough? 
And, and mostly, kind of, we haven't really. <laughs> but we also have, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, we've had, we've, we, 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 you know, how much more experience do we need? So to have a, had enough, you know, and then in our society, when we feel that, it's like, oh, go shopping or, you know, go cheer up. But actually, it's actually a very mature, a maturing. It's a point of maturing. There's a growing up. There's a turning inward at that point. You've had enough of suffering, had enough of pleasure, enough of pain, had enough of getting there. So the mind starts to turn inward. You know, this, this letting go, softening and recognizing what's always here, what remains, what isn't suffering, what is, what is just, you know, there's still thoughts operating, karmic wheel is operating, but that I, we're not hooked into it, we're not being born into it, sense of self, but that I, subtle movement Avicca Pachya Sankara, not understanding the nature of Sankara and patterning as dukkha, that subtle sense of being born in this is me, this thought, this feeling, this ambition. Not doing that, just seeing it, this is Dhamma, condition, thought forms, feelings, memories. And so turning the mind, recognizing what is free. What is not being born, or sometimes called being patient with the non-production of dhammas. It's one of Master Shunwa's teachings. Not having to keep producing things. The practice of being patient, because it's not an immediate thing always. It's like being patient in the gap. Not having to rush in and produce something. And that's a, that's a tricky territory, because it can feel like nothing is happening. You know, it can feel like an emptiness or there can be anxiety there or it can be, you know, we need something a bit more than this. So to recognize the peaceful, it's in the non-born, the non-originated, the non-production, is a sort of an acquired taste, actually. We say we want to be peaceful, but we don't really. We like the drama. (laughs) We're a bit bored. Peace is a bit boring. <laughs> so, so we have an opportunity in this in this retreat to explore that the gap, the non-created, the non-suffering.
So yes, we can talk. But having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door, a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So this world is a, is a lot of suffering, and it's uh, it's never going to end. <clears throat> and we hold our, in our hearts with compassion for the suffering of all beings. And with mercy, May all the wise forces of goodness be present for the suffering that's being generated through ignorance, through greed, through desire. And may beings be touched by moments of peace, moments of freedom, moments of non-suffering. May all be free. May all be well. And may all be protected.
Bye.